Are we too fearful as parents to allow our kids to develop into normal, functioning adults? Are we helicoptering and snowplowing and submarining in lieu of parenting? If so, what kind of adults are our kids turning into, and how is that impacting their ability to function when they get to college? Let's talk about it with author of How to Raise an Adult and host of Panoply and Slate Media's Getting In podcast, Julie Lithcott-Hames. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome again to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, an admissions counselor who talks to people who've generally been doing things in this world for a really long time and have thoughts for us to contemplate based on their experiences. My guest today is no exception. Uh, there's more things to see at crushpodcast.com, and I think the thing I want everybody to do the most is just rate the show on iTunes. Rate it. It's easy. I'd really like to get you know, a smidge closer to the number of reviews that uh, you know Julie has gotten for her podcast, which is 74. And I think, you know, I've said it before, I'm not a math guy, but I am about 73 shy of that. So help me catch up. Perhaps now that getting in is is not a regular recurring thing for you guys to to listen to anymore. I can I can fill the void over here. Come on over, you getting in fans. Happy to have you. The water's fine. Okay, so following Denise Pope and the Turning the Tide gentleman of last episode, this is shaped up to be kind of an informal part three to my series on the mental states of today's college applicants. Julie Lithcott-Hames has become the voice of and for the parents on the issue of overparenting, leading to a total lack of emotional preparation once kids reach independence in college and arguably become adults. She was first brought to my attention by none other than Bill D., Bill DeRizowitz in episode one, who uh, she also name checks here. There's a lot of complimentary ideas, but she's also been hard at work uh, between speaking gigs as the host of, as I mentioned before, Panoply and Slate Media's podcast about college called Getting In, which is a super well-produced run through the entire admissions process from beginning to end, featuring the commentary of experts and and real-life kids who are going through the college admissions ringer. So Julie and I talked about what it's like for her to be going through the admissions process with her own son, pushback she may have gotten from parents, cultural sensitivity issues around our expectations for student achievement, uh, what colleges can do to help ease the stress families are feeling, and when I should and shouldn't help my three-year-old daughter put on her own dang shoes. Hi, Devin. How's it going? Very well. How are you? Pretty good. What are you up to? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm headed off to give another talk. I leave for San Diego tonight. I come back tomorrow. Um, I was just in Boston last week and, uh, you know, um, uh, getting started on, uh, I've got just got uh, book deals for two new books. And so I'm planning for a meeting with my editor to talk about those. So you know, a lot of different things. And I've got children and, you know, uh, one of them's about to be a senior. So I'm, you know, uh, watching him go through the process and try to navigate websites. And, you know, I think I, I, I've been saying for years, it's not more complicated than it used to be. But now that I'm watching my son do it, and I'm sort of helping him out a little bit, I see that 
navigating websites is so different from just reading brochures that you could, you know, request in the mail. Um, there's so much that's knowable about a school now. And so when you're trying to figure out, well, do they have an astrobiology major or do they have a biotech option? You know, the extent to which you got to dig and dig and dig and some websites are amazing and some are terrible. And um, so it's really given me a lot of uh, a lot of empathy for what what kids and parents have been going through um, compared to when I applied. And it was, you know, it was just so much just the process of learning about a school, I think, was simpler. There was there was less that was knowable. You know, there was just only so much they could cram into a brochure and send you in the mail. And yet, we still c- cram brochures <laughs> into the mailbox, don't we? Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How are you? What's going on for you? Oh, I'm I'm good. I'm like, uh, you know, it's summertime, uh, which yeah. means almost nothing. And uh-huh. uh, in in my line of work, it used to mean more, I think. Uh, but yeah, it's incredible how much um, you can find to uh, pack into your time during these summer months. And of course, I'm in New York City, so that means that it is somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 312 degrees uh-huh. right oh. now uh, with the humidity and everything. So it's glorious. So yeah, and then, you know, gearing up for the fall. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm recording. I thought it would just be fair of me to tell you that. Yes. (laughs) All right. Um, and, uh, yeah. So congratulations on the success of your book and the podcast and everything. And you, you know, I was going to ask, what are you up to next at the very end of this? And maybe I I still will, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, you've been busy. Well, busy is how I like to be. And, um, I'm doing new things these days, uh, but all just in furtherance of trying to trying to be useful, trying to make you know a bit of a difference in in my neck of the woods here, uh, whatever that might mean. You are, know, so are yeah. you surprised that your message has been as as um, in demand as uh, as it has? No, I'm not surprised because when You're I banking go to- on it. Well, <laughs> literally, <laughs> no, but, um, but here's why I knew it was a good, uh, investment. Um, you know, I would go to my annual Kofi conferences for academic advising deans. And I remember when as a breakout conversation, you know, 15 years ago, somebody would talk about, uh, parents, you know, are you seeing an, a, a real involvement of parents in day-to-day decision-making? And, you know, I remember when it moved from the breakout conversation in the hallway to an optional, um, you know, workshop conversation uh, where, you know, a third or a fourth of us would attend to being the topic at the, you know, in, in the big room at our conferences. And so I knew that this was not a Stanford problem. I knew that this was, um, you know, quite broadly, a problem experienced at, you know, many, many four-year colleges and universities um, across the nation. And I knew people were, um, on our end, were hungry to talk about what was happening. And I knew that young people were starting to really feel a tremendous um, pressure and, you know, dismay at kind of what life felt like. And I knew parents were suffering. Because, you know, they were trying to do what was right for their kids, but they it was wearing them out, you know. And uh, so I think, you know, people were looking for somebody to kind of blow a whistle and say, wait a minute, 
let's regroup, you know, let us examine what we're doing and why and whether there might not be a more sane way of going about, you know, childhood and parenting and getting kids off to this place we call college. So people were hungry for it and I knew it. And I thought I had a good vantage point given my role, my former role at Stanford and given that I'm a mom in Silicon Valley, which is, you know, a real hotbed. Uh, right. This is a, expectations. this is a really personal story for you, isn't it? It is. It's personal. Um, you know, I, as, as you and I've discussed elsewhere, you know, I, I became quite compassionate after initially being a finger wagging Dean trying to tell the parents of my students, Hey folks, trust us, trust your kid. Now get out of here. Um, you know, I came home one day and began cutting my 10 year old son's meat. And that's when I realized, Oh my God, parents can't just magically let go at 18 if they've been doing way too much for kids, you know, who are 17 and 16 and 15 and so on. And, um, uh, so I've watched myself as I've become, um, a bit of an expert on this subject. I have, you know, I've got now a new lens with which to watch my own behavior and to observe my own feelings and attitudes as a parent. And I struggle with this, it, you know, inclination toward doing too much for my kids. I struggle with it every single day. What kind of pushback have you gotten um, relative to some of these ideas that you present in, in particular when it comes to maybe some of the suggestions or, or lessons that folks could, could adopt in their, in their own lives? What kind of pushback have you gotten uh, uh, to those things? I think the biggest pushback, um, which I respond to, and then they rebut further, is, you know, aren't we just doing what we have to do to get our kids into the quote-unquote right colleges? And I say, you know, the whole concept of right college is out of whack. You know, we're a nation rich with higher educational opportunity. There is not a set of, you know, 25 or 35 colleges that are the only colleges you can feel proud to have your kid attend. Um, so then they say, you don't get it. Employers want graduates who have gone to those colleges. And that's where I pull in evidence from places like Google, where the head of human resources there, Laszlo Bach, has said, yeah, we used to think you had to have a, a degree from Stanford, MIT, or Harvard to be good at this work, but we've studied it. And we found that where you went to college has nothing to do with where you are in your career at year 5, 10, or 15. Boom. That's nice, solid you know, evidence from from a corporation that's doing a lot of hiring. And then I point to, you know, Harvard Law School's list of graduates this year, uh, 540 members of the class went to 171 different colleges. Right. So it's like, look, folks, no, employers, grad schools, you know, these are two examples, I could cite so many examples, you know, are increasingly aware. I mean, if you look at Bill Derisowitz's work, Excellent Sheep, you know, there are a lot of employers who are increasingly aware, wait a minute, sometimes having gone to the biggest brand name place um, gets us all excited when we're looking at a prospective employee, but can they do the work? Do they have the... Uh, do they have that kind of self-starter skill set or are they just really good at uh, really, really good at following, you know, other people's direction? Can they work as a team member? Are they humble? Do they know what to do when things go wrong? Oftentimes those traits and skill sets have not been cultivated in a young person if they've managed to get to the biggest brand name places because of the degree of perfection required to get into such places. So, you know, that's that's the piece that's, um, I think, at the heart of it, quite frankly. And it's the, it's the pushback I would have expected, and I enjoy having those conversations. And mostly I enjoy saying, 
There are 2,800 accredited four-year colleges and universities in this nation, and as with anything, the top 5% are probably magnificent. That's 140 schools. You haven't heard of most of them, mm -hmm. but they offer a fantastic undergraduate education. And if I have time, I then go into what is a fantastic mm -hmm. undergraduate education. And of course, you and I know it's connection with faculty. And, you know, you want to be at a place where the faculty are going to give a darn about you, give a damn about you, I think I can say, because this is a podcast. Say whatever you want. Uh, give nuts. a damn about you. Yeah. Small classes with faculty, faculty who are motivated, who want to teach and mentor undergraduates. You know, I try to, I try to toot the horn of, of, uh, of that approach to undergraduate education wherever I can. Mm -hmm. I try to help parents, most of whom really – you know, if they're not in academia, they don't have the first clue about what makes a, a college education fantastic, which is why they rely on rankings. You know, it's it makes sense, but we've got to we've got to really wrestle. You know, the American parental psyche uh, away from U.S. News and World Report. Right. It's just by no means, by any means, it is it is by no means the best list. The book is called How to Raise an Adult, not like How to Raise a Good College Student. <laughs> Right. right. Um, so, I mean, do right. you, you know, do, do you consider yourself a, a parenting expert or how do you sort of prefer to position yourself in this debate? And, and if you could give us a little of your your provenance on this on the student services side. Devin, I don't consider myself a parenting expert. I'd go so far as to say I didn't even want to be a parenting expert. Should people, do, should, should, should anyone <laughs> give themselves that title? Yeah, I mean, it's become a, quite a quite a cottage industry um you know i think we parents have a lot of good instincts and part of what's wrong is we've allowed ourselves to get caught up in what other people think and you know what the experts say and sure i mean there are some really broad parameters from you know love and feed and shelter your child and take an interest in their development on the one end you know to don't neglect them don't harm them you know on the other but it, within that vast middle is a whole lot of different ways to, you know, um, uh, to be. Um, it's not really a vast middle. I guess I was. It's a binary, right? So you want to be on the side of of caring and loving and taking an interest in your child, but how to do that? I mean, there's just so much room there to do what you want. So, um, so no, I don't think of myself as a parenting expert. Unwittingly, I, I think in writing this book. I've been branded as a parenting expert, but here's what I clarify. I say, look, I was a university dean. Heck, before that, I was a lawyer, and I pursued law, and then I pursued work in academia, and now I'm pursuing life as a writer because I'm interested in humans having the chance to thrive in life, and I'm interested in anything that gets in the way of a human having the chance to thrive. And as, as the dean of freshmen at Stanford University, a role that I created and held for a decade over the years of that tenure from 2002 to 2012 i saw more and more students whose parents seemed to feel the need to attend their every move in college and fewer and fewer students who um seemed to have the wherewithal to make a choice make a decision cope with a setback without immediately turning to a parent and i worried about you know when will my students gain a stronger sense of self that by definition only gets constructed when you have to do for yourself. Parents are very lovingly intended, intended here. Students are very, very grateful. But let's imagine whether it's 10 years from now or 40 years from now when that parent is no longer capable of being the student's you know, executive function and go-to solution 
you know, and problem solver, then what? You know, a human only gets there by doing this work for themselves. So I really, I wrote this out of compassion for my students. I felt they needed an advocate. They who had been overparented needed someone to stand up and say something. Did I hear that correctly that you said that you had essentially sort of created this this position or stepped firstly into this position at Stanford as dean of freshmen? Is that right? Yeah, I created it. I was working in the president's office at the time and um, the vice pro I had been the dean. So my provenance, um, as you put it, you know, in I like to throw around, yes, you know, fancy words. I don't think we can say SAT words anymore because I don't think it, I think with the changes. No, exactly. Okay. So, so the, um, so I was a corporate lawyer who became a university administrator. My first role at Stanford was, uh, associate Dean for Student Affairs at Stanford Law School. So essentially the Dean of Students at the law school, which, you know, had with between its various programs and degrees, about 600 students. And I, I played that role for two years and loved it. And then we got a new president at the university, John Hennessy, an amazing man out of electrical engineering. Uh, and uh, he hired me to be part of his senior staff. And I did that for two years. And uh, toward the end of my second year working in the president's office, the then vice provost for student affairs for the entire university reached out to me and he said, would you ever think about coming back to student affairs? You worked in a law school student affairs role. I said, yeah, I would. And I've got an idea I want to propose to you. And I had written up a, you know, kind of a job description and an org chart plan for a dean of freshmen. I said, we've made a lot of strides at this university on the academic side of the house around offering a small liberal arts college feel academically to our undergraduates, small classes, you know, attention from faculty, research opportunities with faculty, but in addition, or and, I think we could do more to really um, help shepherd our newest undergraduates into this enormous place. And I think we needed Dean Freshman. I think I could do that job. And, um, and so, you know, he pitched it to the president and the provost, and they gave him some funding, a sp- tiny bit of funding in a dilapidated office. And, you know, I went and hustled computers from Apple Computer right down the street. And I've heard you know, of off them. We, off, off we went. You know, I had two and a half FTE, and by the time I was done, we were at 36 FTE, not because we'd added all these administrative jobs, but because we'd done a lot of consolidating and and bringing different uh, previously um, distinct offices kind of under one roof. And we were able to offer a a really cohesive, coherent um, set of offerings to undergraduates. So yeah, it was a role I, I, uh, I hatched, I hatched the idea. Um, And so what, to to what degree did um, the creation of this job mirror run parallel to the emergence of the problems that you discuss in your book and yeah. h- how did you use that office to uh to address these things uh in on the student affairs side of things there's one other thought that i want to just add because i i would be remiss in answering the last question if i don't mention my mentor jim montoya who was who is is now at the college board but was um at stanford for many years and Years before I, uh, well, a couple years before I pitched the idea that we needed a dean of freshman, he put that idea in my head that maybe Stanford could really benefit. And so thanks to him, who'd been mentoring me in my career as a university administrator, I kind of found the guts to 
to tell other people that maybe we ought to do it. Okay, so what yeah. what was I what was I seeing? Well, I knew, you know, from my years at the law school that, you know, when I was in under, when when I was in student affairs at the law school, I would meet with folks in undergraduate student affairs and I was hearing them talk about how parents were starting to this would have been the late 90s were starting to kind of come to college with their kid and stay and or, you know, virtually be present by email. So that's about phone. the time that I went to college. I went to college okay. in 1999. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So right about then, I heard colleagues starting to talk about it and scratch their heads and puzzle over it. What does this mean? What about FERPA? You know, how do we tell these folks politely but gently like, boy, you're really over encroaching here. And then what happened is those parents behaving that way just seemed to grow in number every year. We weren't measuring it. We weren't studying it. It was all anecdotal. Um, you know, we were bemused because I think the expectation was that students would kind of kind of push their parents off, you know, and say, folks, I've got this. I'm 18. You know, I'm 20. I'm a college student. But I think the alarming aha moment around about 2005 for me, which is when I wrote my first op-ed on the subject for the Chicago Tribune was our students didn't seem to mind. And that's when I sensed that we had a more systemic, existential, generational, societal, psychological problem in the works. That if these young folks don't mind parents doing the thinking and coping and so on for them, who are they? Do they exist, you know, in any meaningful existential way at all? Or are they little robots or pets or somehow you know these just sort of little extensions of their parents will and of their parents choice making and of their parents ability to navigate the world so um i'd say 2005 was a turning point for me i was three years into my role as freshman dean i would stay in the role until 2012 every year we had more and more parents who felt that it was their role to that they should play a role in the day-to-day -day life uh, of college for their child so they wanted to register their child for class and they wanted to um, talk to somebody if they disagreed with their child's grade and I'm intentionally using the word child and I'm using it a bit derisively because it was during these years that we routinely parents and students themselves and we administrators began referring to them as children but you know, when I was in college in the 80s, we weren't routinely calling young men and women in college children. It's an interesting thing that, you you know, the idea that you explore a little bit in your book is how do you even define adulthood? Yeah. Well, certainly that definition has uh, morphed and changed over the years. For a long time, sociologists had a standard definition, which had to do with, you know, achieving some serious, some major mile markers, reaching major mile markers in life, like, you know, leaving home and being married and having an education and having a job and, and having children. And, you know, nowadays, you know, children don't have to emerge from marriage and marriage doesn't have to produce children and people can have children regardless of whether they're married and people can, you know, have jobs without having a college education. You know, there's just so much that's shifted. And I thought, well, let's stop looking at, you know, a definition of adulthood that's really uh, out of date. And, um, you know, let's, let, you know, who's who's looking at a more up, who's coming up with a more updated uh, definition. And there was a lovely survey 
I'm trying to find it in my book right now. Unfortunately, I'm not hitting the right chapter, but basically asked young adults and their parents, you know, to describe what adulthood meant. Right. And then to describe whether they, the parent, and they, the, the, the offspring, felt that the offspring had reached adulthood. And so they ended up describing things that are quite common sense, you know, ability to make your own decisions, um, uh, hold a job, you know, live on your own, this kind of thing. And to, and both the parents and the, the offspring uh, felt in high numbers that the offspring had not yet reached adulthood, and these were offspring who were kind of 18 to 25, I think. So, you know, I think we're, we're really struggling right now as a society with what does it mean to be an adult? You know, the world feels scary and complex and unpredictable. And I think certainly with respect to complex and unpredictable, yeah, the 21st century is this rapidly changing environment. But I contend, you know, our kids, if the world is scarier or less predictable, um, our kids don't need to be overhelped to be successful. They need to be stronger and more competent than we, their parents were. We've got to figure out how to prepare them to engage in this world that's so rapidly changing, um, rather than to pretend that somehow, as long as they hold our hand, that they'll be all right. Right. And I found it's on page 78, if any of you out there have got the hard co- the hardcover. Are we out yeah. in are we out in, uh, in in paperback yet, Julia? Well, depending on when the podcast comes out, uh, the, the paperback is out August 2nd. We'll be part okay. of the we'll be part of the junket, okay? Excellent. Um, yeah. So it's the study published in a Journal of uh, Family Psychology, right? There we go. Yeah. 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 So, really interesting. Um, yeah. you know, and that's and that's one of the other things that somebody, you know, that you quote um, essentially saying, you know, how is it that after millennia of parenting, we still find ourselves so mystified about how to do it? Yeah. Uh, and it's it's really that, isn't it? It's that the, it's the, the definitions of, of all of these things change so rapidly and they're completely out of control, uh, out of our yeah. control. Yeah. I mean, you know, folks used to have routinely had many, many more children than people have today. And and part of the reason for that, when we were farmers and, you know, our, our entire livelihood was based on agriculture and and farming and, you know, we had to tend a big plot of land and animals. We needed to have children to help us do that. And, you know, children were working to support the family from young ages and, and because of child infant mortality and child mortality, kids weren't living necessarily to adulthood. So you had to have more kids because not all of them were going to survive. I mean, we are not that society anymore. You know, we're having one, two, maybe three children. Each one of them is, you know, numerically that much more precious. Um, in a, in, and I only mean that in a numeric sense, not to suggest people with 10 kids didn't love their kids or <laughs> don't today. But, you know, it's like each one, we can notice them more. We can pay attention to their needs more. Um, many of us, you know, live in households where the children are not, you know, required to pitch in and help out. The family economy doesn't require that. So, you know, so many things about parents and children at a micro level and macro level have changed. But I think what has not changed is that uh, we're all mortal and we parents will, we hope to predecease our kids as opposed to the other way around and we'll be gone. And, and, and I think when I get a chance to speak with parents, as I now have around the country and communities all over, you know, I try to really, you know, hone in on this unpleasant but necessary reminder which is we'll be gone one day and then what you know 
we hope it's not when our children are young, 5, 11, you know, 15. We hope it's when, you know, they have had an education, K through 12, and they have gotten out into the workforce and they're starting to, you know, involve themselves in significant relationships beyond family. You know, we'll be gone one day and maybe we'll live to the ripe old age of 99 and wouldn't that be great? But one day, whenever it comes, our adult children are going to need to know how to fend for themselves. We do not want them to feel bewildered when that day comes because they've never filled out a form. They've never made a plane reservation. You know, they've never had to deal with health insurance. They've never had to deal with car insurance. They've never had to get their car fixed. Right. They've never had to get their own job. Yeah. They've never had to argue with the boss because a parent has always done that. That it, All of those things we're doing for our adult children right now we're doing with the very best of intentions, but we've got to teach them to do for themselves or else we will have completely left them hanging when right. the time comes that we're incapacitated or gone. Well, I have a question. I mean, my my daughter is three years old, okay, and so I am at the... Uh, uh, All the time in the world to get it right. Yeah, oh, okay, so I'm, <laughs> you're, you're telling me it's okay that she doesn't know calculus yet? Yes, okay. absolutely. All right, oh, whew, man, I've really been... <laughs> Ridden with guilt You've been over sweating that. Over yeah, that. I know. Yeah. yeah. It turns out that things like helping with the laundry is far more important than her learning calculus right now. Right. I, I mean, and that's you know that's the question I have relative to the thing you just said, which is that you know I, I want to let her do stuff like put her own shoes on, but on the other hand, I'm like I also want to get out the damn door, and so yeah. <laughs> I need to. Just, so there's a patience thing there when it comes to dealing with somebody that's three. But also, you know, I understand there are a lot of these things that I'm like, no, you know, she's crying at me saying, you know, I need you to do, you know, and I'm like, no, you can totally do that for yourself. And I could see this sort of getting away from parents that on the one hand, you know, it, it, helping your kid with stuff is an expression of your care for that kid in its own way, right? And that, and that the absence of that help or the, the, the apparent absence of that help in the form of, you know, encouraging them to do it their own way or do it on their own could be, you know, interpreted by a parent to be like, or, or by the kid to be like, maybe they, maybe they don't care about me. You know, and I'm sure that from a, par from a parent's perspective right now, I mean, obviously from a kid, they're like, leave me alone. But from the parent's perspective, it's it's much more, I could see that being the case, at least that's the case personally, you know, that I, I don't want them to think I don't care about them. So sure, I'm going to help them put their shoes on if it's going to make them feel better. Right. So I think it's not the action, it's the tone of voice that really conveys whether we're dismissing them or we're lovingly helping them grow. And so um, here I'd point to the research um, and wisdom of Madeline Levine, a psychologist here in the Bay Area who wrote The Price of Privilege and Teach Your Children Well, and really wonderful books that, that speak to this um, encroachment of, you know, what's happening to kids, particularly kids whose parents have little extra time and money on their hands. I should step back and say that you know, those are the families I'm talking about. I'm not talking about poor and working class families where I was going to I was going to get to that. You're going to get there. Okay, good. So let's hold that. But just it's important to mention, I think. Yeah. So Madeline has said because she's a, a psychologist, excuse me. She has said, look, we parents must not do three things uh, in order for our kids to grow and have a healthy, you know, psychological sense of self. We must not do what they can already do for themselves, number one. Number two, what they can almost do for themselves. And number three, what's just in furtherance of our own ego as parents. And I like to, with audiences, I like to hone in on number two. What kids can almost do for themselves, that's the 
place of learning. That's they're slightly beyond their comfort zone. You know, it's slightly unfamiliar, not wholly unfamiliar. It's not terrifyingly frightening and new. You know, it's the next step, you know, and we've got to want them to build that skill, whatever it is. And sure, we can do it. We can get out the house faster if we always tie their shoes. But does that end at three? Does that end at five? Does it end at eight? Does it end at 12? I mean, obviously, at some point, we can picture a kid who's too old to have their, barring a a disability of some kind, who's too old to be having someone tie their shoes. And that extends to everything, cutting their own meat, putting their stuff in their bag, packing their bag for a trip, you know, talking to the adult authority figures in their lives. It extends to everything. So we've lost sight of that fact. So you can kneel down with your kid and say, honey, I bet you can do it. Why don't you show me if you can? You know, remember, we've talked. You loop it this way. You know, whatever you narrate, if she really thinks she can't do it, show her and you practice it. You know, you say, let's practice it three times. We'll practice it today and we'll practice it tomorrow and we'll practice it the next day. But then on Friday, you know, I want you to try it yourself because I believe you can. And you're showing her you give a darn about her as you teach her to learn to do more and more for herself. There's a great list in your book of, of a sample of life skills that kids should learn by the time they get to uh, young adulthood. I believe uh, page 166, I believe it begins, just uh, for those yeah. keeping track at home. But yeah, um, it's it's uh, it's really interesting to sort of see it just, just laid out like that. I mean, obviously, everybody's life's a little bit different, but these are the basics. <laughs> Well, yeah, this is in the chapter called Teach Life Skills, and life skills are often set aside these days or completely overlooked because we're so interested in them learning calculus at three um, that we're <laughs> we're focused on their academic enrichment and not on the acquisition of, of skills, life skills. And, and this chart you referred to, which made me gasp when I found it. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't make this up. I found it from a reputable source online. But for, for listeners, it's this... Um, excruciating list like three pages three and a half pages three pages of chores that kids can do it's and it's broken out into very minute age chunks so it's ages two to three here's what your small chores and basic grooming your little two to three year olds can do you know ages four to five ages six to seven i mean Devin, i didn't find this list i think till my kids were eight and ten and i was looking back at like oh my god there are things a three-year-old should be able to do that i'm pretty sure my eight-year-old can't do <laughs> what do i do how do i catch up and let me yeah. tell you if you're starting late at getting your kids involved in their own self-care and you know looking after the house and so on if you're starting late, what they lack, as I say in the book, what they lack in skills, they'll make up for in analytical reasoning. <laughs> they'll say, yeah. if this is so important, why haven't we been doing it all along? And that's where you as a parent have to take a deep breath, look them in the eye and say, that's my bad. We should have been doing it all along, I, mm. you know, and it's time to start now. You don't be overly apologetic about it. You just hand them the broom with a smile. And, and when say, you look at, going. yeah, and I mean, when you look at this list, uh, you know, you don't see you know mastery of the suzuki level you know violin or 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 calculus or any of that stuff i mean those sort of grow out of this but i wanted to ask you because you do reference and uh you know bill de ridgewood has some some uh some thoughts on the matter as well uh for amy chua who wrote the battle hymn of the tiger mother which is uh you know excellent in his representation of one very extreme end of the parenting spectrum that you know the the parent should essentially you know i mean that the the child has no idea what is good for them uh and that the parent should should step in and, and 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 do it all and do it all sort of to death you know um it's really extreme and it's one of the things though 
that you continue to touch on a little bit, which is that uh, there are cultural sensitivity issues here when you talk about uh, parenting, specifically when it's when it's sort of success and achievement oriented to getting to college. And it's something that's been particularly sensitive in the Asian community um, and uh, that, that folks are are finding a, a, a difficult balance to strike. And so I wonder, you know, do you feel like any of your recommendations, um, such as they are in this book, are asking, you know, certain people to compromise their cultural, you know, their own culture, their cultural norms and, and sort of regress to a, a mean that really isn't natural or fair to their to their own culture or history? Probably. And you know what, Devin, that's the first time I've had that question and I think it's an excellent one. I applaud you uh, for not only thinking about it, but but really articulating it so thoughtfully. Um, you know, because what you're really talking about is um, bigger picture, this sort of elephant in the room, which is inevitably in in many communities that are ho- that are heterogeneous, somebody of a particular ethnicity will point their finger at another set of parents and say, it's them. They're the reason we're doing this. Now, depending on the community, it might be the Chinese, it might be the Nigerians, it might be the Jews, it might be the blacks, who knows? You know, it's just... It's in some communities, um, there are folks saying we're we're you know, we're all doing this because there's a group among us that's uh, really insanely devoted to, um, you know, prescribing life for kids and making sure they're test prepped up the wazoo, et cetera. I've tried to be really sensitive to that in my book. I'm a woman of color. I'm I am African-American. I'm I'm very interested in in trying to. assess the situation and make recommendations that um, are not um, uh, limited to one particular culture or background. Um, you know, to the to the Tiger Mom book, um, boy, you know, if I had the chance to meet Amy Chua, you know, I would smile and shake her hand and I would say, I disagree with you so vehemently because I've sat behind closed doors as a dean of freshmen. I've sat in office hours with Tiger and I've seen them fall apart. With the, this, do we call them tiger children? Tiger, well, tiger I call cubs. Them tiger cubs. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like the, you may think this is all well and good, but having been a trusted third party who was tasked with the job of giving a damn about them and taking an interest in their interests and helping them navigate a university experience, I saw the ill effects of having been forced down a path someone else is making. You know, with very limited parameters very high expectations of of perfection it harms kids it harms kids and research is starting to say that and i think taken to an extreme it's actually a form of abuse and you know i don't it's 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 it, I'm, am i saying chinese american parents abuse their kids no i'm saying there's a style of parenting we call tiger parenting taken to an extreme that can harm kids and i've seen it in black folks in dallas and i've seen it in white folks in the Midwest, you know, so it's by no means a Chinese American thing. You know, it's a it's an authorita- authoritarian parenting style um, that can exist in many different cultures. And I think it's problematic. And I think you know, I've spoken with, uh, on my travels with this book. I've spoken to a lot of adults in various communities who say, "Yeah, I was raised that way, and I spent years in therapy." trying to learn to love myself because I'm not sure I was actually loved as a child because right. my parents seemed to only care about my performance. And 
I've spoken to a, a psychologist out here in Silicon Valley who specializes in um, working with members of the Asian American community, broadly defined. And she's shared with me that she works with adults around the extent to which they felt loved as a child or didn't, you know, because there was this perfectionism that seemed to be uh, what was the focus of their family life and childhood. And so, you know, I, I again, I'm not trying to say everybody in any community is this way. I'm saying you know, maybe there are some cultural aspects to this coming from a lot of different uh communities and cultures and countries that might be harming kids and we have to be willing to say that um i do think there's also a a very americanist bent to my work i am an american i believe in you know the ideals of kind of the rugged individual and you know we all have a chance to make it i mean there are a lot of limitations on that um I surely know, um, but I think there is something about that. I think some of the people who are most offended by what I've written are folks who say, look, in my country, it's natural for kids to live at home for a long, long time and, and look after parents. We, we have a multi-generational you know, household, and that's natural, and how dare you say it's not? And I respond like, yeah, that sounds wonderful, and that happens here and can be wonderful. Where it's not wonderful is where a 25-year-old is living with his or her parents and still acting like a child. Mm -hmm. It's not the fact of a 25 or 29 or 34-year-old in a combined living space with their aging parents that's problematic. It's if that relatively young adult doesn't know how to earn money and take care of the house and be responsible in the ways you'd expect an adult to be responsible how to, to to what extent are you aware of the impact that your your book and these ideas have had outside the borders of the United States you know we're seeing more and more and more students from abroad doing things that they think they need to do um you know to get into their own national university systems but then also competing uh you know with students in the United States to get into these colleges and 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 a lot of the the same uh, behaviors you know that you're describing for american students manifesting abroad well what can i tell you um the book has been um, uh, published in the UK and Brazil and the Ukraine and Australia. So those books and Canada, those books already exist outside the US. I've signed contracts in South Korea, China, Romania, Hungary, Vietnam, and a publisher that will uh, distribute it to all countries where Arabic is spoken. Uh, and so my sense from those from the demand you know to to translate and publish my book elsewhere is that hey other people are saying yeah we got this going on here in our country too and maybe the the inputs the causes are a little different but at the end of the day it seems like there are a lot of folks looking around and saying yeah we've got this problem of underconstructed young adults and it was both disheartening you know to realize that because I don't like that this problem exists but then of course as the publisher of this book it's like wow that's cool people sell my book in vietnam okay <laughs> you know that's awesome yeah so um you know yeah uh we're global right and students right. are competing with with each other around the globe for spots at universities and that actually plays into um part of this fear particularly if you're a, if you're a parent here in the u.s who's from say china um, you might be familiar with, you know, the fact that 
there are a couple of universities a person can go to in China and feel like they've got a chance to really have the kind of professional life they want. Um, that is, you know, there's a very limited number and you need to get the right score on the right standardized test in order to be admitted to that school. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of like, that's your option or there is no option. Right. And one of the things I've discovered is if you're an immigrant here in the U S from a place where that was the norm, well, then you think that might be the norm here. So you hear, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Princeton, whatever. And you think I've got to get my kid there or else they won't have a chance. You know, the mistaken thinking is that or else they won't have it. That, or else they won't have a chance, right. Yeah, it's just not true here. So I, one of the things I like to do, and sometimes I'm, sometimes people will have me come to their school explicitly to talk with parents about this point, mm. that there are so many more options than folks realize, that there are better lists than U.S. News. You know, I some people say, you know, my some I've had a principal say, my school population is hem heavily immigrant from, say, India and China, maybe Singapore. They come here and they feel that they they're they must get their kid into one of these colleges at all costs and could you help spread the message among our families that no 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 there there are a lot of other options and i'm delighted to have those conversations because that's just a lack of information you know that's just a misunderstanding of uh of how the american process um is compared to the process they're familiar with based on wherever they're from yeah Okay, so I'm going to transition to talking about admissions a little bit by asking this question. You know, if if it shouldn't be the relative ranking of the college that your kid gets into or, or their starting salary after college, what is the right measure of success for a parent to use when they're, you know, kind of considering how their kid turned out and therefore how they did as a parent? Boy, what is the right measure of success when a parent is thinking about their child? Um the first two things that come to mind for me are they know how to treat others with kindness and respect and they know how to work hard. Love it. I mean, that's, and you know, that because <laughs> the, the, the reason that I, you know, the reason I put it that way is because this is why this is how parents think about college a lot, you know, is that that's what that's success, you know, and, and, and the better the college, the, the, the more, the more striking the success. And, uh, and you know, the, the, we, I think you and I and others that I've talked to, your friend Denise Pope, Bill DeRigiewicz, you know, uh, other folks, they, you know, they, they would like for us to expand our imagination a little bit about what constitutes success uh, uh, in parenting. Absolutely. Denise is, you know, co-founder of this amazing organization, Challenge Success, with Madeline Levine, whom I referenced earlier, and I'm on their board, mm -hmm. just as a disclaimer, but I think... D um, Denise uh, disclaimed that in, in episode 11 as well. <laughs> so we're doubly disclaimed. Yeah. So um, I think you've hit the nail on the head here. Our definition of success is woefully narrow. It doesn't give our kids much of a chance, um, actually, um, because what are the odds any of us as a parent can be sure, can be certain that we know what our kids' skill sets and and passions are. You know, Bill Damon, the wonderful professor out here at Stanford, has written The Path to Purpose. And he says all of us, you know, benefit from having a purpose in life. It becomes a rudder. It becomes a thing that guides us. 
it's the answer to the question, why do you do what you do? But he says no parent can give a kid a purpose any more than we can change their personality. We've got to instead look for the spark of an interest in our kids. We have to pay attention to what sparks their interest. And then when we see that spark, we fan the flames with whatever we can offer by way of opportunity and guidance for our kids. So, you know, I think, Devin, what this comes down to is, contrary to to the way most of us approach it these days, parenting is actually quite a humble, a humbling and humble exercise. We are tasked with the care and feeding, nurturing of a small human. And um, what an awesome responsibility that is. And it's terrifying at times and it's full of wonder and joy, but they are their own human. And if we can be humble and remember that, then it isn't about what we might have wanted for ourselves and we're now trying to force upon our kids, or it's not about our social circle and what our friends are gonna ooh and ah over. You know, it's about actually taking thoughtful interest in that kid and helping them figure out who they are and what they're good at and what they want to do with their life and right. supporting them and being the best version of that person. Right. Uh, you and I met recently at a conference that you spoke at with admissions deans and directors of like 35 different schools, including Stanford. Rochester. You know, Rochester. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stanford, you know, is, and Rochester. But all the Ivies, right. you know, the, 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 the most selective and, you know, therefore coveted uh, institutions of higher ed on, on planet Earth, you know, and this is the this is the Kofi group that you referenced earlier. You know, what, what was that experience like for you? What kind of comments did you get from that crowd after your talk since you were, I thought, really very passionate about uh, encouraging them to consider the state of affairs in, in such a way that it might drive them to change uh, some of the ways that they do business? You know, it was an exciting opportunity and I was um, nervous and terrified. Uh, Couldn't but tell. Also, also super excited. Oh, thanks. I mean, because wherever I've gone, parents have said, as I, as I said at the top of the hour, I think, you know, aren't we just doing what we have to do to get our kids into the right colleges? And these were the quote unquote right colleges, admissions deans and directors sitting there in front of me. And so in some ways I was saying, yeah, parents are saying it's all your fault. And, um, and I know it's not that simple by any means, you know, no college wants parents to be doing their kids homework for them. You know, no, no college wants to admit kids who've been packaged and manufactured to look a certain way, but who aren't actually, you know, that, that person. Yeah. So, um, the comments I got afterwards were, you know, the people who came up to me and looked me in the eye and shook my hand said, you're saying exactly what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. Fantastic message. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I think there, I gleaned that there were, you know, many who feel like, yeah, you know, we can't, we can't change it. This is what our boards of trustees and, presidents and provosts, et cetera, expect of us that we continue to bring in more applicants so that our selectivity goes up, so that our ranking goes up, that we continue to, to you know, let, let GPA and SAT, um, we, re we reward the higher numbers um, uh, because, you know, that's how we rise in the rankings and so on. And, you know, I think that, so there, there are plenty of people, I think, who feel, um, like they're in the straitjacket that the system is, even though they're very senior in the system. And there are people who really get that this 
the net effect of this is harm to kids and they want to they want to do something about it so you know i'm one voice there are a lot of people talking about this talking about whether we can make some transformation in the world of college admission in the u.s elite college admission i'm actually headed to a another conference um the skinny atlas institute uh, next Monday, uh, this will be late late July. I'm uh, meeting with um, other admissions folks and college counselors at at elite publics and privates um, at at their annual summer meeting, and we're going to talk. And they've all read my book, and so you know, it's it's hard to be brave to be the first, you know, dean at a big college or university, big brand name college or university, to say, you know what, we're going to do things differently. It's hard to be the first parent in a community to say, I'm going to stop doing my kids' homework, but um, I think as the evidence mounts that young people's mental health is um, suffering, and that some of it has to do with the extreme pressure they're under, as well as the kind of existential impotence they suffer from when mm-hmm. parents are constantly out there doing everything for them. I think these mental health figures cannot be ignored. Um, they will impact our community, our society for decades to come if we don't figure out, you know, how to how to turn these environmental factors, which are under our control um, around and, you know, restore, you know, a healthy childhood, return, return childhood to children and help them, you know, have a have a healthier experience. So I think that's going to be the driver. I think universities and colleges are going to say, you know what, we're spending all of this money hiring more mental health practitioners. What can we do at the front end, you know, to try to um, send messages that kids don't have to mortgage their childhood in exchange for a chance to come here and end up here brittle and fragile and needing the mental health services. Yeah, and this, you're, you're, uh, if things go according to plan, I'll be able to put your this conversation out immediately following uh, the one that I had with um, Lloyd Thacker and Rick Weisbord about the Turning the Tide report. And, Good. Uh, you know, you were just talking about Sort of, you know, what what can we really do about this? Um, and specifically, what can colleges really do about this? And I think that's a good uh, a good place to start. You know, for schools that are wondering what they could do, you know, and that was uh, discussed at that conference. And one of the folks that spoke uh, about that report was was rather passionate in his, you know, defense of his own of his own work, which you know you alluded to a little bit earlier to say you know nobody is nobody is 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 trying to make it this way um you know nobody wants uh, uh students to, to 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 be developing in an unhealthy fashion relative to their parents and, and and their you know college success when that comes um you know and i i just wonder because and this is my perspective here as a college admissions counselor i mean how complicit do you think college admissions offices really are in you know driving some of this behavior you know um there are people who, there are admissions officers who are out there bragging about their higher and higher numbers of applicants each year. And there are those who have the guts to say, this is nothing to brag about. I'm with them, the latter. I think when you're bragging about your, you know, tens of thousands of applicants over the number you can admit, you're basically bragging about your very successful marketing machine that has, you know, in an unyielding fashion, sent emails and printed brochures into the lives the of The aforementioned high brochures. <laughs> into the lives of high schoolers you have no intention of admitting. And, you know, um, so what is that about? Why are we why are we trying to drive up the number interested in having qualified, you know, uh, applicants who can thrive on their campus, of course. But there's a marketing machine at work 
um, that, by the way, you know, you think you're the university of whatever or the college of so-and-so and you've put together this whiz bang, you know, email, you know, marketing piece or, or a printed brochure, but you're all working with the same companies. And so when that brochure or email lands in a kid's inbox or snail mailbox, it looks barely any different from, you know, the others that they've received. And so it's like, hi kid, you know, take an interest in our college and, Everything else has a sort of, you know, click here. And, you know, it just looks like spam. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame because, you know, I value, obviously, I'm a big proponent of higher education, having been a part of it on the on the administrative side and having, you know, a couple of graduate degrees myself. You know, I, I, I shudder when I see colleges and universities kind of, you know, slowing themselves to um, the status of, you know, uh, I don't know, Jim's car wash, you know, it's like, come to our place. No, come to our place. Mm -hmm. um, so I think some are complicit in, you know, are, are under pressure to increase their apps, under pressure to increase their yield, and are going to do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And I just think they've forgotten that there are kids here. You know, we're not talking about widgets or you know, bushels of hay or cars coming off the assembly line. We're talking about young humans. Right. And I think there are elements of this process, particularly in communities like mine here in Palo Alto, California, where kids feel that because of the high stakes nature of this process, that their worth and value as a human being is simply a function of their GPA and standardized test scores. And so if they're cutting it, if they're highly, highly successful in those regards, they feel good about themselves, at mm -hmm. least temporarily. And if they're not, then they feel they're worthless. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think the admissions officers and deans have to take an interest in what's going on and have to take an interest in can't we evaluate kids? Can't we assess high school activity, behavior, discipline, rigor, achievement? Um in a way that doesn't uh, ask a kid to do more and more and more hours of work in order to impress us. From the you know the couple of podcasts that I've done and the folks that I've spoke with that that um, are are interested in this issue, I, I I'm always curious to know you know because th this is one of the things that I asked Denise Pope and that you know that that she spoke on, which is that this isn't just all of a sudden a, a group of people sprang forth in history to decide that this is a problem worth studying, that this is driven by a real problem and real issue that deserves to be addressed. Um, and uh, you know, I guess my question is, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, at least, you know, hey, at least we're talking about it. You know, I mean, at least the conversation is happening. But but aren't there? I mean, shouldn't there be more than that? You know, and uh, do you think that we're getting closer to making actual substantive changes that are going to make an impact on, on these kids? You know, I said earlier, it's hard for any college or university or parent for that matter to be the first, to be the brave one who says the hell with the system. I'm doing it differently. But there are those among us in the parenting community, parent community, as well as the college and university community where folks have been brave. And I think about Reed College and its refusal to participate in some elements of the U.S. News survey. And so I'm they from, take the I'm from Portland, Oregon, and, and, okay. and rode my bike as a kid all over uh, Reed College campus. Yeah. It's a special place in my heart. It's a special place, and they've really 
taken a bold step and they take the ratings hit that comes and they say to we don't care sarah lawrence tried it by not turning what it was it that they didn't turn over their sat score they stopped asking for sats hmm. and as a result u.s news said well if you don't give us sat scores we're going to presume they're 200 points lower than your peers and they took the rating hits that came and i think have since reinstated uh or you know the sat requirement um and so my point is there are schools that have tried and have stuck to it, mm-hmm. like Reed. And there are schools that have tried and really suffered in the ways that matter to them, and so they've had to relent. I think we all say, like, if the big boys would really change things up, by which we mean the biggest brand name schools, then the rest could comfortably fall in line, you know, which is why it's great that the Turning the Tide report exists and that it's been signed on to by so many very well-known um, schools. I think Stanford is notably absent. You know, the dean there is a friend of mine. I admire him greatly. And, you know, he's he's not told me specifically why he didn't sign on, but I but I know him and love him. And, and so I know he's got his, his reasons. Um, so maybe Stanford won't be the first to kind of really change this up, but maybe a few of the biggest, other biggest brand name schools will we've got a real problem and it's going to take brave people to stand up to it. So what and do you think? Fundamentally, uh, I, I wish they would stop participating in U.S. news. I think U.S. news has a stranglehold on the American psyche. They've got us right where they want us. They have to change up the list a little bit every year so that people will still click on it every year. You know, if colleges, you know, uniformly said as many have tried, as many presidents have said over the years, we're going to stop participating. We want to stop participating as they, as much as they they don't boast about the rankings on their own sites. If they would collectively say we're no longer participating, that would be an amazing, amazing thing. Yes, uh, it would be. <laughs> but I, um, uh, I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep hope <laughs> alive for that one. Keep hope uh, alive. As, uh, as the Reverend Jackson would say. Um, I want to skip again because it was kind of in a section that didn't really work. But I wanted to ask you about that point that you touched on a little bit. That this is just kind of a problem for like rich, rich kids. Yeah. And and you know what do you what do you make of that? I mean, Denise, I think had something really interesting to say that that this does end up impacting students, you know, uh, who 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 aren't of means in, in a school environment where, uh, you know, they they see what's happening kind of at the uh, at the top of the curve, and it and it and it does impact, uh, you know, their own sort of sense of self and sense of capability and achievement. Yeah. So my vantage point um, again just as a reminder for listeners is, you know, former Dean of Freshman at an elite university. So I had a student body, 15% of whom were first generation college students and over 50%, 5-0% were uh, receiving financial aid, many of them significant financial aid. So I had in my student body, students from many, many, many walks of life around the world, around the U S mm-hmm. from some of the poorest school districts in our nation as as well as the richest and so i was only seeing students who had made it to stanford is my point okay so i i can't speak to you know to denise's observation and research about well what are high school students who you know are are seeing that top end you know how how does that impact them that's you know that's just not something i see or have any expertise on right but what i did what i did see was this my students who were on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum impressed me. They spoke, if I may put it this way, with a strong letter I. 
picture a capital I, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, I've got this problem. Here's what I'm going to try. Then I'll try this. I'll come back and see you talking to me, you know, and then I'll try this third thing. Whereas their more affluent counterparts mm-hmm. were more likely to text a parent and ask them to handle the problem, whatever it was. And so I began to wonder how does a kid who's got affluent parents who are accustomed to navigating bureaucracy, negotiating for them, uh, tapping their own network, how do those kids uh, acquire that tray in their toolkit that they're going to need, you know, that self-reliance toolkit, you know, and I'm not trying to be romantic about poverty or struggle. What I'm saying is that when you've had a harder life, you end up a little bit stronger in some really important ways. And if you're fortunate enough to get a decent education and get to a good university or college, you know, you've got an extra skill set there that your more affluent peers are going to lack. Uh, finally, the podcast is wrapped up. It's called Getting In. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It was a really interesting, uh, you know, companion. Uh, I think for the over the course of, of the the previous academic years, to sort of follow the students and everything. It was really cool. Um, plans for for that to return? You know, that was up to Slate. Um, it was produced by Slate's uh, podcast uh, venture called Panoply, and they only ever intended it for one year. And I was secretly hoping that. As we began to hear from people, you know, like you who say positive things about it, um, as those, you know, numbers of fans increased that they'd say, you know what, this is a good model. Let's keep at it. But nope, they were really clear Not one year only. So I, however, you know, like you really enjoy the podcast format. I loved getting to be a host and interview people and uh, and so on. So I'm actually, you know, thinking, is there a different podcast in my future? But sadly, it's not going to be the podcast getting in. Yeah. Well, let, you know, you're welcome here anytime. And let me know if I can Thank help you. with anything. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, uh, and then you've got you've got books coming out. Uh, can you talk about what those are going to be or, or not yet? I think shouldn't talk about them yet because the, the deal is not inked. Okay. And- uh, but suffice it to say, I'm expecting to write at least a couple more books and be excited to describe them when the time comes. In the meantime, if I may, as you said earlier, I've got a paperback coming out, and um, it's uh, I'm holding a copy of it in my hand. It comes out August 2nd. People can find out about my work at howtoraiseanadult.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, you know, this is uh, we're part of a movement that's much bigger than than my little book. Um, but we're part of it and we're trying to, you know, return childhood to kids and move the parenting pendulum in the other direction. So, uh, I hope if listeners are interested, they'll check out my work and it's been really lovely to get a chance to talk with you. Yeah, I'm sure they will if they haven't already. Um, it's worth, uh, it's worth all the time that, that folks can dedicate to, uh, to learning about what it is that you're, uh, that you've done and what you're putting together and thanks. continuing to do. So, um, thanks That's really for, kind of you. thanks for your efforts, uh, to do this stuff and, uh, we're all paying attention. Um, so thanks a lot, Julie, for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks, Devin. Appreciate it. All right. And I'll let you get back to your to your day. And um, good luck looking for colleges and stuff. And uh, we have a great biomedical engineering department at the University Ugh. of Rochester, uh, you know, physics and astronomy. So let me know if we can help. So um, just awesome. a, uh, my own little plug there. Put your other hat on. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. The paperback is out now. Go get your copy. Run to your kindle and download it onto 
that's not a the same as a paperback. I don't have one of those, so I don't know how it works. But bookstores, maybe you guys remember those. They probably have it. Um, so go scope it out. So while Julie was the first to hold this position of Dean of Freshman at her school at Stanford, the role is not uncommon now. Uh, it has a few different names, uh, but they, they really work to help students transition into this new environment in a variety of ways that have grown to include things that hadn't traditionally been necessary before, as, as we heard. Um, I will never forget a presentation I saw a few years ago by a woman who essentially held this position um, and it was more of a sort of a parent liaison position at, you know, at sort of uh, one of these big shot uh, top 10 U.S. news type of places who said that they had to figure out a way um, to deal with the fact that a kid's mom was living in her son's dorm room, sleeping on the floor. Um, I... I know how I would have reacted to that if I was that kid, I think. I mean, if I was me and that kid, that kid obviously uh, was in a bit of a different bind. But, uh, you know, that, that, that's a, a smidge on the extreme side of things. But, you know, these are the kinds of stories that, that provoked Julie to write this book. And, you know, I appreciate it. She was also quite clear to mention that she's mainly talking about kids at the higher end of the socioeconomic arc here, especially we're talking about Palo Alto. And... You know, unfortunately, I think this is sort of the segment of society that selective college admissions offices are sort of trying to appeal to firstly. You know, these are our bread and butter. These are the students that are sort of most likely to uh, to be looking our way. Um, as we heard from John Burdick in episode 10, tuition revenue is a big deal for a college's operation. So getting kids to enroll who can pay all of it is helpful to the university's bottom line, of course. Uh, you know, but in addition to there being financial aid to support attendance by low-income students and the fact that all of us are out there talking and beating the bushes and trying to help enroll um, students at the lower and middle-income uh, levels of the, uh, of, the, of the spectrum here, we've also heard more and more about the degree to which college may not even be the answer for everyone when you consider that you've got a lot of kids that, that go to college that, that don't finish and end up doing different kinds of work, um, which uh, I think Ben Castleman uh, touched on a little bit. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing is that we've stigmatized going to college so much that, that if you don't go, you're some kind of social failure. And that creates its own stress, and it's a topic I want to talk about in a future episode, and it's something we really need to spend more time talking about, I think. You know, for whom is college really the right choice? Are we, are we right to make that the standard for all high school graduates? It's, uh, you know, it's a topic that is uh, rife with controversy, mainly because we, we want to make sure that we're not setting expectations uh, you know, commensurate with household income, so that only those families of means have college as an expectation for them. Um, in fact, there was a story the other day on NPR exactly about this. Um, if you want to listen to it, Google Claudio Sanchez, why high school students need more than college prep. And you can hear the story. Um, he's in Eugene, Oregon, in fact, so a place uh, you know, close to my, my heart and hearth and home and family. He quotes someone working on these issues as saying, every year more than 400,000 young people in the top half of their high school class go to college and at least eight years later, they have not gained either a two or four year degree or certificate, you know, and then how do those folks fit into the economy? Maybe we can um, do a better job of, of, of uh, meeting them before they have to go through an experience that might feel like failure. All right, uh, go buy the book. Follow me on Twitter at CrushPod. Rate the show on iTunes uh, so that I can close that gap with uh, the Getting In podcast here. I hope you're having a great summer. 
I'm going to try to get uh, one more of these out before I go on vacation next week for like, you know, 36 hours, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'd like I'd like to be able to do that. I have interviews that I'd like to be able to put out. Uh, I love that cliffhanger, by the way, right? Will Davin manage to find the organizational capacity to even do this podcast? Stay tuned. Or not. Right? Um, whatever. I'm dying to know the answer to this myself, in fact, so we'll see what happens. Anyways, thanks for listening, folks. I really appreciate it, and I'll talk to you next time.